0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to episode 44 of the Craft Sanity podcast. This podcast is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce this weekly show in the hopes that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. And in case you're wondering about the lack of music on my last few shows, I'm trying to find some new music that will be kind of my theme music that I'm going to stick with. So wish me luck. And if you have any suggestions, if you produce music yourself and you would like to have your Music considered for the theme music of the Craft Sanity Podcast. I'm not going to kid myself. I realize this might not be the most exciting thing for a musician. (laughs) But if you're crafty and musical and are interested in a possible collaboration, let me know. And we'll see if we can get something going because I really need to find some music soon. So on to this week's guest. I am really excited to bring you an interview with Betty Christensen. She's a 37-year-old freelance writer, editor, and knitter living in La Crosse, Wisconsin. She's the author of an inspiring new book that I just love called Knitting for Peace, Make the World a Better Place, One Stitch at a Time. And if you haven't seen this yet, I suggest you check it out. It's really a fabulous book for anybody who's looking to get involved in charity knitting. In her book, Betty gives a great history of charity knitting and profiles more than two dozen organizations that stitch to spread warmth, love, and hope to those in need around the globe. This is one of those great knitting books that contains both patterns and stories. So you can read about all these people that have, in many cases, just cooked up an idea and started this little charity effort right at a kitchen table, and it just exploded. Many of us are familiar with charity knitting organizations and probably haven't given a whole lot of thought to how they got started. Well, Betty, in her book, shares many of these stories and It's really inspiring, because you can learn how people like you and I had an idea, saw a need in their community or somewhere else in the world, and decided to do more than just pick up their own knitting needles and make things. They decided to tell friends and neighbors and people in their community how they can get involved. Betty has set us up really well. Between the covers of one book, there's so much information from a variety of charity organizations, so you can select the one that appeals to you and get stitching because the book contains a wonderful collection of patterns to get you started. There's patterns for everything from prayer shawls and preemie and chemo caps to teddy bears, afghans, cardigans for little babies. The book also contains the patterns and then when you finish your piece, a lot of times there's confusion about, okay, where do I take this? How do I get it to the people who are in need? Every pattern there's a address with information and instructions on where to send your finished project. And, you know, even if you don't knit, you're going to enjoy hearing from Betty, who is going to share the story of how she's blended her love of knitting with her writing and editing skills to kind of really create a creative career for herself. She has an MFA from Sarah Lawrence College and has written articles for Interweave Knitting, Vogue Knitting, Family Circle Easy Knitting, and she's also contributed to books including For the Love of Knitting and Knitting Yarns and Spitting Tales and Knitlet 2. She also collaborated recently with Melanie Fallick on a book called Hand-Knit Holidays. We're going to start out the conversation with Betty is going to tell us a little bit about this old home that she and her husband, Andrew Miles, rescued from its past life as a rental for college students. <laughs> so, career Project, settle in, and let's get to it.
1: We bought an old house last year that we're remodeling, and, or renovating, I guess is more the word. It's... You know, it's a never-ending thing.
0: What kind of house?
1: It's an old, I would say it's probably like um, an American four-square. It's kind of at the end of the Victorian period, and it doesn't really have all the frou-frou details, although there's a lot of houses like that in La Crosse. It was probably built at the turn of the century. It's got, you know, some nice inside. It's got some nice trim and nice details. Of course, they're all gone now because we've, you know, taken them down so we can replaster.
0: Right, right.
1: Taken up a full year to get them back up.
0: Well, that's going to be wonderful when you finally get it done and can just kind it of is. sit back and knit. One of those
1: things, too, it was La Crosse is a college town. There's a University of Wisconsin campus here. And this had been a college rental. Like seven college guys lived here.
0: Oh, boy. So you probably. And, <laughs>
1: uh, so it needed a lot of love. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> You know, it's, it's the kind of thing where we walked in and we could see beyond, you know, the beer on the floor and stuff like that. It had some wonderful details, and we knew that with just a little bit of love, you know, it could be this great house. Yeah. We didn't realize just how much love it would need, but you never do. Or no. you would never go into these projects. Exactly,
0: exactly. People fall in love with the potential of a house, yeah. Right. But at least you're at a point where, I mean, you can provide much more care and love to this structure than seven college guys ever could so you know i
1: feel like we saved its life i think i was
0: just gonna say i think this is really a turning point for this house yeah, <laughs> you know, there are a happy times. <laughs> yeah there'll be less abuse probably not to say that all college guys abuse the facilities they live in but you know i've well, seen some pretty ramshackle looking Yeah, oh goodness well what brought you i know that you actually moved from new york Is that correct? Yeah,
1: I did. I'm not from New York originally. I actually was out there for just a few years. Here's the whole lineage. I actually am from Wisconsin originally. I grew up in a very small town in northern Wisconsin called Luck, of all things. And, Is it um, just L-U-C-K? L-U-C-K. Right.
0: Awesome. Okay, that's <laughs> pretty lived cool. We a little
1: farm about, you know, a mile and a half west of town, so our joke was we were always just a little out of luck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right. That's wonderful. What a great story. I mean, because I, I say I'm from Fraser, Michigan. It's four square miles, and that's that's my story. <laughs> it's outside of Detroit. I don't have any kind of cool story to go with it. Well, that's wonderful.
1: And so, yeah, that's where I grew up. And then when I graduated, I went to college in Minneapolis, Oxford College, good little Lutheran school. And then after that, I stayed in the Twin Cities, lived in St. Paul for, gosh, like eight years, for quite some time. And while I was there, I was an editor for a couple of different publishing companies in town. Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities are, it's a great little publishing hub. There's a lot of small publishers so if you're a writer or kind of a English, if you're an English major, it's a good place to put down some reps. You know, after being an editor for for so many years, I'd always wanted to kind of do two things. One was pursue writing, a, you know, a little more seriously. And another was, I always wanted to go to graduate school and I wanted to go away to graduate school and I didn't know what I wanted to study exactly and I figured, you know, I would take my time getting out of college and figuring out just what that would be and then, um, you know, I'd pick up and go someplace different and I'd been to New York and had loved New York so what I ended up doing was going to Sarah Lawrence, it's just out of the city, it's in Westchester County, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and getting an MFA in writing. I don't know if it's really necessary to to do that if you're going to, you know, pursue writing, but it it was a good kind of kick in the pants for me to sit down and actually put pen to paper and and get kind of serious about it. And it was also in New York that I really started combining the writing and knitting. I'd knit my entire life, you know, since I was a kid, probably eight, and I remember one of the very first things I did once I got to New York was... um, I'd seen a flyer on a bulletin board at Sarah Lawrence for, um, I think, the knit-out. It, it had to be, like, the first or second one that they ever had in New York. So I went, found some information on the Big Apple Knitters Guild. I thought, oh, great, you know, I'll have a knitting community. <laughs> so I joined the guild, and one of the speakers at one of the very first meetings I ever went to was Tricia Malcolm of Folk Knitting. And she was up there doing her presentation, going through uh, the upcoming issue and showing the different. Projects that were going to be in it. And the whole time I was thinking, I'm a writer, an editor, and a knitter. She must need me. (laughs) So I literally went up to her afterward and said, you know, I'm an editor, a writer, and a knitter. Do you need me? And she was like, sure. (laughs) So I started working for them mostly kind of on a freelance basis doing editing and then more and more writing articles for them. Then eventually, and the whole time I'm working on my MFA as well. Shortly thereafter, I met Melanie Fallick and began writing for interweave knits for her, and that's actually how Knitting for Peace came about.
0: How much time did you take between your undergraduate and your going off to grad school?
1: 1991 to 1999,
0: eight years. What did you do as your project?
1: My degree is in creative nonfiction, and what I'd always wanted to do was write, um, this is going to sound silly, but write my memoir, (laughs) not really my memoir, but you know, you go through life and you pick up stories along the way. Oh, yeah. some of them are really good. You kind of want to tell those stories. And not just tell the stories, but, like, make a, a piece of art.
0: Right, right. You know,
1: tell them really well. Tell them in a way that somebody would care about and want to read and that other people would be interested in. And um, so I went in with the idea that I would come out with kind of a collection of personal essays, I guess. And that would be my, the- my thesis project. I guess my focus kind of changed. The stories I wanted to tell ended up being not the ones I ended up telling in the end, but it was definitely a good experience. Not that getting the degree is so necessary for pursuing a writing career, but the opportunity to sit down and be so focused on your writing, Mm -hmm. which, if you're like me, it's so easy to do anything but your writing. Oh, exactly. especially the writing for yourself. You know, if you're writing for a magazine or something, you've got a deadline, you've got a very specific you know, idea that you have to get across or a goal to accomplish, and that kind of writing is easy. But, but when you want to do something a little different, a little more in a creative vein that has no deadline or no particular, you, you may not know what the goal is yet, It's really difficult to find the time to just sit down and do that. It seems so difficult.
0: Well, I think part of the reason, I know in my experience, I was just thinking about this yesterday, in fact. I was like, you know, I really want to, I mean, I always consider myself a writer first, and I'm not doing a lot of writing, like the kind of real writing that I really think I should be doing you know because I think it's you know I work for a newspaper so every day I'm writing but it's usually like I basically my profession the way I think of daily journalism is we publish a series of rough rough drafts you know and we never we just kind of come out with you know you crank something out in an hour and of course when you see it in the paper the next day you're like wow Yeah, if I would have had more time or, you know, if someone else would have called back. I mean, it's a, so I've never really totally thrilled with, and I'm my own biggest critic and probably a lot of journalists feel the same way, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's so hard then to justify spending weeks or months on something that may never be published, you know, or, 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 or to go home after writing and write more. So you said when you went into your MFA program, did you go in with a portfolio of nonfiction writing, like autobiographical stuff?
1: I had to send some pieces in to be accepted, um, but I gotta tell you, I like wrote them like right before the deadline.
0: Yeah, that's what most of us do, I think. Yeah. yeah. I
1: didn't have I didn't have a nice little collection of short stories just waiting to waiting to go. And a lot of the people that I went to school with did. You know, they'd been doing this for some time. They'd been taking themselves more seriously than I had. Right. And they'd shown up and they had their little, you know, quarter of a novel or whatever. And those of us in nonfiction, it was a fairly new program at the time. And um, it, so the class, the, those of us in it, there weren't, there weren't so many of us. And we all had kind of come from the same place where we just all said, I want to I wanna write, and I want to go to graduate school, and, uh, and I'll go here. And uh, <laughs> I don't have any writing, but I can crank some out. And, you know, I, I'm sure there were some of us that were better prepared than that. But, but a lot of us kind of went in that way thinking, well, I don't really know what's next, but this is something I'm very interested in, and this is something that I think will be a good experience and will be worth doing. I was the only one who actually packed up and moved, you know, a thousand miles to do it. Oh, they, and everyone. My other classmates were from the area, but. Yeah.
0: Well, it was good that you weren't the only one that came kind of at that same that mindset of, you know, I, you know, I haven't done a whole lot of this, but I'm, I'm going to do it now. And so it sounds like you were in good company with others that were making similar changes in yeah. their lives
1: yeah and when you do that too, it kind of it makes you believe that you actually have a little talent, like if you if you just pulled something out of your ear and sent it in and, and got you got
0: in a, yeah you
1: know, a fairly competitive graduate school program and I certainly didn't get into everyone that I applied to, but you know it it gives you a little faith in your ability, which then leads you to take other risks
0: What was the surprising thing you said you went in with one idea of what you were writing and then ended up writing something else so
1: Shortly before I went to graduate school, I'd done a little traveling in Europe. Not, you know, not a huge trip, but but big enough. And traveling alone taught me a lot about myself and how to approach life and and all kinds of things. And I came back just feeling like like there was a story there that needed to be told. And when I tried to write those stories, my classmates weren't nearly as interested in them as I was. They were much better traveled than I was. Um, things like that what they were absolutely and thoroughly fascinated with was my life growing up on this little farm 2 a, a mile and a half out of luck they just couldn't get over that whole lifestyle and the experiences and I used words they'd never heard of like alfalfa and creamery and you know, <laughs> that was what they were and, and that was what they really pushed me to write was was more things from my humble but totally foreign to them background and so I ended up doing, you know, writing about my family and writing about where I grew up and, and things that happened there. So that was kind of a surprise. And did you end up
0: publishing those stories?
1: One got published in uh, creative nonfiction. That had absolutely nothing to do with where I grew up, though. That was a piece on September 11th. Okay. That they put a special online issue together for. But no, you know, I haven't really shopped those at all. And now they're like you know they're several years old and i think well i should be writing some fresh material and sending that out and you know that hasn't happened i've written a book in that time but it's exactly. not what i Exactly. Yeah not, but not went that graduate school for. not that
0: book but you know Though those stories since they're part of your your childhood I mean like you own those stories and it's probably what your classmates recognize because I've sat in creative nonfiction classes as well and one of the things I noticed about myself and my colleagues in the class I mean is that we sometimes you come in and you think the story you have to write is something that just interests you but you don't know a whole lot about it and Mm -hmm. we sometimes forget that I mean or don't even recognize that there are things we know very well we know our own lives we know where we came from and it makes sense to me that they would be so intrigued because you, well, you heard my response to where you're right, from. Right. Yeah. I mean, that to me is that that the title is right there, you know.
1: Just out of luck.
0: Just out of luck. You know, I love that. That's a title. You have to do that book someday. Um, I will.
1: I will. And I've got a good. I've got a good start on
0: it. actually. I think we all have the stories that we're meant to write. I attempted to get in a program here in Michigan. I ended up writing this diatribe that was like I was going through a really probably my like my darkest point ever in life, and I uh, so I wrote this like really. Um, melodramatic, like, you know, diatribe of what I was going through at the time. And I think it just freaked people out.
1: You know, you might be at a different enough place, too, where you could revisit it and, and yeah. tell it in the way it needs to be told. Yeah,
0: it's... um. Yeah, it, it was just ridiculous because I think I, I went through. I, I was the pr- first time I was pregnant. I had a miscarriage, and oh no!
1: Oh, yeah, and God. I God. kind of
0: yeah, and that's what this whole thing was about. And it taken me a really long time, you know, to get pregnant. So when that happened, you kind of go through this whole, you know, horrible experience. And
1: I've uh, been there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Have you written about that or no?
1: I wrote just a little bit. I kind of hinted at it in one story. I wrote about trying to get pregnant, and then there was another woman who wrote, and this is just kind of, it's funny how things get interlocked and kind of connected, but there was yeah. another woman who wrote about having a miscarriage, and then, I don't want to go so far as to say part of the healing process, but she she lived in Minneapolis, which is the headquarters of one of the charities that I wrote about in my book, called the Mother Bear Project. Yeah, she found such comfort in knitting this little bear, and and by the time the book came out, and I actually read that story, i talked to the woman who had started Mother Bear, and i knit with the women who knit for Mother Bear, and uh, and my my story I think came right before hers, and it just I've never met this woman, but it just it, it felt like this neat little circle had just taken place
0: so it sounds like you've been able to kind of write and knit your way through as well
1: yeah actually when it happened it was um it was just a year and some ago and i was i was actually in the middle of all the interviews for knitting for peace and you know it was it was like going from a great high to a great low you know you'd you'd be talking you'd be so excited yourself and you'd be talking to people who were talk, you know so excited about what they were doing and you just yeah. felt like there was all this hope and love and wonder in the world and then suddenly crash. And the, the first thing was like, how am I going to do this and keep pressing forward with the book? Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the truth is, just like you said, you put one foot in front of the other. And other things that really helped at that point, too, was um, like I remember that, that I had an interview scheduled with Peter Haggerty of Peace Fleet the very night that I found out that mine wasn't going to work out. And he's this amazing storyteller. He just You know, you give him a question, and then you sit back, and you just let him go. And it was such a relief to, you know, have it be that easy. Like, I didn't have to work at this interview. I could just turn on my tape recorder and let him go with very little prompting from me. And then the interviews after that point kind of started to take a different, just in my head, a little bit of a different turn for me. It was like, you know, these people, they were so excited about what they were doing, And they were spreading hope and joy and warmth and love to people, you know, little kids in their community or, you know, kids in Afghanistan or Russia. Mm -hmm. And it just, you couldn't not be touched by all that joy and hope. It was like, you know, bad things happen. Bad things happen everywhere. There's, Mm -hmm. There's children freezing in orphanages in Russia and they may never get out of the orphanage. And, you know, at age, 16 or 18, they may turn to, you know, a life of crime because there's no hope for them. But a lot of these little kids are also getting, you know, warm little socks and sweaters and things. And they know that, you know, somebody is caring about them somewhere in the world, even if they're not getting adopted away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's enough. Sometimes that's what you need to, you just need to know that in the face of, well, a personal tragedy or, you know, just in the world today, there's so much, you know, you open the paper and it's hard to go on after that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and it's really, I mean, it's so, there's so much going on and, you know, every day there's something new, it seems, you know, um, in the world somewhere or very close to home. And it's really hard to keep sight of the small, positive things that happen all the time that really do make a big impact in people's lives, too. And that's what... That's what I learned through all these interviews is that no matter what is happening in my life or in Iraq or anywhere else, there's this positive little bubbling undercurrent of knitterly stuff going on that that is making a difference, maybe in a small way, maybe in a big way, depending on the person it's affecting. But it's, it's just like this little bubbling current of goodwill that ripples out from knitters and crocheters and other crafters to... To affect a larger world, but on a very person-to-person basis, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to read about it so much in the papers because you know it's not going to, you know, save a city in a battle. But but it's it's good and it's positive and it's constant and it's out there and uh, and that you know that's what I wanted to capture when I wrote the book and I, I you know and then heading into it I didn't realize how you know how it would affect me personally, but Yeah, it's just that presence of hope and and love and, you know, it just made you realize the world isn't such a bad place and it's so full of such good people doing really good things, however small they may be.
0: Do you think it was especially good that you were working on this project um, at this time in your life? I mean, do you think that gave you the buoyance to get through and kind of just a distraction?
1: It was definitely a good distraction and part of it was I had a pretty short deadline, so I really couldn't not work on it. You know, I had to get up every day, and and really keep going if I was going to get the book done. And um, and you know, there's there's nothing will get you through a crisis like a project like that. And right, it, it, right. It just happened that it was something that was so positive and so good that um, you know I think it it, it helps heal too.
0: Well, and I think this is going to resonate with people too. Um, yeah. Did you find it hard though to when you're talking about? Because I know for me, I and this is the part I had the hardest time with is when you know I'm you know knitting. I had to put the blanket project away and uh, go to something else. And then you know in this experience, I I kind of found that you know I everywhere I looked there was like baby stuff, and you yeah. know and it was just to the point where I was like, oh man. Was it hard though when you're talking to people and they're talking about making things for babies and all that? I mean, was that?
1: No, that was not that hard. And I'm trying to. See if I can tell you why. I think. I mean, the babies that are getting knit for, by and large, aren't. You know, and th-
0: these are kids that need to, parents. Yeah. You
1: know, this is not to. Um, I don't know. I'm just afraid this is going to come across across kind of wrong. But you know, they're generally not. You know, the Gruber baby. Right. You know, right. The happy, perfect babies that everybody envisions. People who knit for premature babies. I mean, I, I knit with a woman who's a neonatologist, and she you know, she's, she's told us what reality is like for some of these little guys and girls. And it's it's hard and it's tenuous and it's very, very scary uh, for the parents. Um, you know, when a baby is born and, and it only weighs a pound and a half. So on the one hand, you know, you're writing a story about knitting for premature babies. So you're immersed in all this baby stuff, but you you know you relate in a different way it's not like oh they have babies and i don't it's like wow you know we're all struggling with our baby it's yeah no
0: matter yeah no matter what side
1: right, you're coming no matter from. what it is and you know gosh you know i may not have had my baby but you know how hard it must be to have one that's way too early and then you know maybe it doesn't live
0: yeah oh, and God, so yeah. you
1: realize that um i don't know the pain is you know, it's not like mine is worse than yours and, you know, I, so I'm feeling more sorry for myself than I do for you. But well, and it's, like, it's
0: really universal. You know, pain exactly. is like some, one of those things we all understand, you know, because right. we've all felt it in some way.
1: And I think, some, you know, it's better to come at some of these stories with that perspective, too, of having... You know, the pain I've had in my life does not compare to some, uh, you know, say the pain of somebody, in, like a woman who's been through the war in Bosnia and lost her husband and her children and things like that. My pain is nothing compared to what she's been through. And, and it helps you put that in perspective, too, and that helps you move on. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, here's this, here are these women. This is one of the stories in the book about a group of women, and there's many groups in Bosnia and other cities or countries in the world as well, where knitting is really being used to rebuild their lives. It's a job for them. It's a way that they can make money. You know, they're knitting goods, by and large, for a Western market and receiving a, a pay that is fair, you know, given their locale. So they're, you know, they're earning money, they're being able to support themselves that way and kind of rebuild a life in which they may have lost their house, they may have lost their family, they may have lost their job, and com- their complete lifestyle has been wiped out and they're starting from scratch. And then in addition, they may have lost loved ones. And, you know, we've talked just now about how healing the act of knitting is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're re- they're earning some money, they're... They're knitting, and that just the process of knitting, of creating something beautiful, I think, helps get through pain. Um, but then there's also a community that is made among these women, and they talk. You know, they open up, and they're able to share their stories. And, yeah, pain is universal, and, and knitting helps us through it.
0: Well, I think awesome. that your idea to do this book, Knitting for Peace, is just... It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful book. I because I, I I haven't seen anything like this with the stories. Because I love the fact that you came at this from the dual perspective of a writer and a knitter. Uh-huh. Because I think that if you were just one or the other, this book wouldn't be what it is. And it's beautiful. I even like the. I, I'm enamored with everything from even starting with the front cover. I love the choice of pink and brown.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know? wasn't my choice. You know, yeah. I can only take credit for the writing. Yeah, and, you know, but,
0: I mean, I was just like, when I saw that, I was just smiling. I was like, well, this is going to be fun. You know? Happy
1: book. Yeah, it
0: really is. And I, well, the whole, you know, the whole concept, knitting for peace, I mean, like, who wouldn't want to do that, you know? Right, Especially right. when we hear, you know, turn on NPR and you hear the count how many soldiers we've lost, right. you know, and it gets to the point where it's overwhelming. But if you can do something, you know, walk into your y- local yarn shop and settle in with some other, um, you know, knitters and just kind of, you know, do something to help people overseas or yeah. even in our country who are in need of, yeah. you know, um, blankets or dolls or, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. It's just, it's just a wonderful project. And I'm, I'm curious about how did you come up with this? I mean, what led you to do this book?
1: Well, um, I love the idea of knitting for others anyway, and it's something I kind of came to a little late in my knitting career, mostly because I was afraid to knit in public for a long time because as a child I'd been told that the way I was knitting was wrong and, you know, I was supposed to relearn it. So I was always afraid that, you know, how I knit was wrong and if somebody else saw me do it, they'd make fun of me. And once I got over that, and it took, like, it was like 1998 before I got over (laughs) that, You know, I discovered the beauty of knitting in a group. And, of course, charity knitters are often knitting in groups. Right. You know, there was a group that met at my local yarn store. I don't remember meeting with them in particular very often, but I do remember walking into that store once and seeing a flyer that was put out by the Minnesota Knitters Guild, who's, you know, they're extremely active in charity knitting. They take on a different charity every quarter, I think, and just knit like crazy for it. And this particular focus was cardigans for deserving babies. The flyer contained a very simple cardigan pattern that you could make with worsted weight yarn that you had lying around the house. And these little sweaters would then go to babies born at local hospitals that, you know, they may not have, you know, a going-home outfit or going-home clothes at all. And, of course, this, this is like in the middle of winter that this thrust is happening so you just, you couldn't not knit for a little cardigan for a baby.
0: You it know, doesn't have any, right. It might go
1: home in a Minnesota winter without a sweater.
0: Right. That's pretty compelling. Yeah, It is.
1: So I went right home and I got some yarn out of my stash and knit up a little sweater and just the process of doing that was really sweet. You know, I'd, I'd knit presents for family members and things like that, but when you were knitting for somebody you didn't know, especially somebody who seemed so vulnerable, you know, you couldn't help but think about whatever baby might get it and how it might help them through this winter. And it just, you know, it made you feel good. And, you, and, and part of that was knowing that you would make somebody else feel good, too. You know, the mother might be really surprised and, happy to get this little thing in the hospital and I was kind of hooked at that point point. and then when I very shortly after that I moved to New York and joined the Big Apple Knitters Guild which also is very active in charity knitting and I think they get together twice a year or so at someone's big house in Brooklyn and they just knit like crazy. And I remember working on a pre, on preemie caps with them, and I'd also just started sock knitting and discovered that this was a fantastic way to use up leftover sock yarn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're knitting these teeny little hats, and I remember starting mine at this house and asking the woman next to me if, you know, if I had the gauge right or something, because it just seemed so small. And she said, preemie hats need to fit heads the size of oranges. Oh, wow. And I, I couldn't even imagine that. You know, I... I known one premature baby in my life and you know i I couldn't remember you know how big or small he was but the size of an orange that was unbelievable to me And, and so that just kind of stuck in my heart and then when i was writing for vogue knitting they would often i think more through family circle easy knitting which they also published at the time i think it's got a different name now every year i think they would do a sweater drive or a blanket drive or something like that and then donate you know, the knitted pieces to a particular charity. I think one year it was Project Linus and another year maybe Binky Patrol. But, you know, so it's starting to see slowly over the years how, you know, how many outfits were doing this and the impact that they were having. And it, it, you start, you know, you get excited about it. You want to jump in and do the same thing. It's like you said about knitting for peace piece earlier. Who wouldn't want to do that, mm-hmm. you know? And then... As I wrote more and more articles for the magazines, you know, I I wrote one about women in upstate New York at a yarn shop who were, um, you know, making scarves that they were selling for breast cancer. And let's see, over time I wrote about, one of the pieces that's in the book is about knitting in prison, Mm -hmm. prisoners who Mm -hmm. knit and then give these items to people in the community of the prison and all the benefits from that. And just the more you found out, the more fascinated, I became with the idea that knitting could, it was so versatile, you know, so many people could use it and it could help people in so many ways, not just a product, you know, not just getting the warm item, although that is probably the primary thing. But like in the case of the, of the inmates in the prisons, you know, it was giving them self-esteem. It was a new skill that they, you know, a lot of them had never done anything really positive in their lives, let alone create something. With their hands that then they could give away and and help somebody with, and it was really transformative for a lot of people in those situations. So it just it, it had such far-reaching effects, and it's such a humble craft. Who knew? <laughs> you know, who knew that could that knitting could mean so much to so many people? And again, the more I found out, the, just the more excited I got, and the more pieces I kind of accumulated and research, I thought, boy, you know, if I did just a few more of these, I'd have enough for a book, and that'd be a great story to tell, and I could do these profiles and of all these organizations, and it could be really inspirational, and it would be so much fun to write because I would get to talk to all these people, and, and that, was, that was kind of the idea that I had. And then, kind of at the same time, Melanie Fallick, who I'd been writing for, um, for Interweave, then moved to Stuart Tabori and Chang, where she is now their craft editor. And she she told me, as she was making the transition, if you have a good idea for a book, let me know, because I'm in a good position to get you published. And shortly after that, I said, well, I do have this idea. And I think it kind of coincided with another idea that um, you know, she'd kind of been kicking around. And I wrote the proposal, and they accepted it. Pretty much right away, and we were on our way.
0: Well, and I'm so glad you you did this book because what it does is it makes it really easy for people to knit
1: for charity. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that was a real goal of mine when I was writing it. I wanted to give them, give readers, not only introduce them to a number of groups that they could knit for, but I mean, give them the really practical details of where to send it and where to look up more information and what kind of yarn to use and, you know, include patterns that would work for those organizations, too. Um, So you just couldn't go wrong. You know, if you suddenly got the bug to start charity knitting, you could do it so easily just by picking up one book. And I did quite a bit of research. I never found anything else out there like it. And I thought, what a void, (laughs) you know. I could fill that and help people... Do this, if they
0: want to. Well, I think it's a wonderful contribution because you know, kind of going back to you know, when I said it, it makes it really easy, and I think the reason why it makes it easy is it tells people exactly, as you said, what yarn to use, and here's, uh, here's some pattern suggestions. Because I think a lot of these groups get donations, you know, pretty steadily, however, a lot of times some of the in- items donated are, are not really what they're looking for. Um, that's, yeah, that's, and that's always a
1: problem. And that's
0: a big burden because you figure, well, it's a, big, it's a problem because people spend time knitting mm-hmm. and they might not be knitting the right thing or with the right materials. So this is going to be, I mean, it's great because it's a great kind of roadmap, but it's also inspiring because you can always put your own little twist. You know, if you're making caps or something, I mean, there's obviously plenty of room for personal creativity. Yeah. But this is just, for the folks that want to start a group, I'm hoping what people do is when they hear you talk and they hear you um, when you go around. Have you been touring around on a book tour? I've
1: been doing a little bit. I've, I've, it's kind of been kept local. I'm, I'm actually having a baby in a couple of months. So oh, wow. Well,
0: fantastic. <laughs>
1: it's fantastic. It's kind of putting a damper
0: on my, you know, my Oh, that's tour. the best kind of damper you can put on <laughs> a book tour, though. Well, I'm yeah, so excited for you. That's yeah, wonderful. So
1: I've, I've just been doing things. Fairly locally. I did something in Chicago. I'll be in St. Paul. I'll be in Milwaukee. Of course, lacrosse here. Yeah, it's kind of put a, you know, <laughs> it's limited me in a lot of ways. And yeah. sometimes It makes me feel very anxious because I think, well, I could be, I should be doing more. You know, I should be getting out there and, you know, plugging this more. And then I think, well, I can't. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah, but you There's know,
1: only so much I can do. Yeah.
0: So you're doing a lot of knitting for the baby? I,
1: I have done a little knitting for the baby. I had done. I've done a lot of knitting for babies. My, you know, whole knitting career. I've got things, you know, that I knit back when I was in 4-H. That I thought, oh, I'll tuck this away and save it for the baby I'll have someday. And um, you know, baby stuff is just fun to knit, even if there's no baby in your life. So I've I've got a few pieces that are you know in a box in the closet, and I've done a little bit lately, but not, not so much. Well, everybody's really- having a baby now, too, so I've been knitting a lot for other people's
0: things. Well, I am so happy, you know, because was one of those things where I'm like, well, I don't know if I should ask the question. Oh, no, <laughs> no. <know>. A- <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, thank you for sharing the happy news yeah. with us. I think that's fantastic. So, so yeah, so you're not going to – well, getting back to what I was saying when I asked you if you were going to be touring around, I, what I hope is when people hear about this book, whether they hear it on the show or they read about it on someone's blog or right. however – they hear about the book what I'm hoping is it inspires people to get together with some friends and um, some knitters in their community or even you know include some crocheters these are all knit patterns but um, you know certainly uh, teach a friend to knit and set a goal you know maybe say hey in the next year we want to be able to contribute um, you know one item each to a particular group or each pick a, a different group but just to get together maybe once a month and you know, work on something, because I think yeah. there's, it's so rewarding, too, to be able to give, I know I always feel really good when I'm, I give something to somebody, like, I make something, I give it to them, and I, it's well-received, and, and in this case, these are people that, um, in many cases, I mean, they need to feel some anonymous love from, yeah. you know, coming from, if you're in an orphanage, or you're, um, you know, you're, whatever the case may be, I mean. Yeah, in a
1: shelter or anything like that. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful gift, and if you make something and give it away, it's like putting really great karma out into the world. And we can all use a little great karma coming back our way, right? You know?
1: Yeah, we could. Yeah, um, and it's, you know, every single organization is really adamant, too, about the handmade aspect. And some of the groups I featured, you know, they do knitting is just one component. Like the blanket projects, like Project Minus. You know, you can crochet a blanket. You can ditch a quilt. You can make one of those. Blankets, so it's just two pieces of fleece tied together, you know, with the fringe tied together all right, around. Right, right. You know, they don't care, but what is most important is the handmade aspect. You know, um, anybody can go out to, you know, the mall or to Walmart, buy a blanket and put it in the mail and send it to somebody in need. And while it's filling perhaps a physical need, it's kind of missing the whole point of somebody spent time on this for you, right. you know, Mm-hmm. Somebody you don't even know cared enough about you that that they were willing to take time and energy and materials and and create this, and that means a lot to the person on the receiving end. And it's a little hard to track, I think, with some of these, you know, with charity knitting and that, because even the people in you know running the organizations aren't able always to capture the reactions of the people who receive these things. But occasionally they do. And I mentioned the Mother Bear Project before, and that is one where teddy bears are being knit for AIDS orphans in South Africa. And she is one person who is the woman, Amy Berman, who began it. Her contacts in South Africa have sent her lots of photos and things like that of the kids when they receive these teddy bears. And they're all on her website, and they're all just amazing. It's just scores of these beautiful little children with these, you know, just, their eyes just, you know, scrunched up with delight and these huge grins on their faces, and they're holding up these teddy bears so proudly and so happily, and, you know, all you have to do is see a photo or two like that, and you have all the incentive you need to go on Mm -hmm. and, you know, keep knitting.
0: Especially in the States, mainstream media, I think, doesn't really get it, like, why why we do these things.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I know
0: my newspaper personally, I keep saying, you know, this is the whole DIY movement that's underway right now in this country is really powerful. And there's reasons why people, especially post 9-11, have really wanted to fill their lives with time where they're making things themselves and, and giving them away and contributing in some way. And so I think that what you've really successfully done in this book is kind of summed up, you know, you've, you've, you've talked to the people that run these things and asked them why they do it. And Given readers all the information they need to make a project that will fit very nicely with each organization and where to send the project when they're done, which is a key thing, too, because a lot of times people drop them off someplace and they're not sure if they ever get to where they're supposed to go. Right. So it's just really, I mean, you must feel proud of this. I mean, this is really, I think, great.
1: I do. I feel, I feel very happy. You know, I mentioned before that I wrote it in a pretty short amount of time it was like six or seven months like too short I could have easily stretched it out you know longer but the writing process sometimes just became a blur and you know when you're on a tight deadline like that you're you're so focused on your goal and getting it met and you're just writing furiously and and I remember just hoping just really hoping that you know all the the emotion and the good Things that seemed to have come out of the interviews were somehow making their way into the pieces as I, as I wrote them so fast. And I felt really good to like, set it aside and pick it up months later and realize that it had. You know, it, it, was like it was inevitable that that would come through. I was at a yarn shop in Chicago, and I read one of the stories from the book, and people were crying. And it wasn't even like a sad story from the book. I read the one on Afghans for Afghans.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Which
1: I thought didn't, you know, you there didn't. are some that have more tear-jerker information in it than <laughs> others, and I didn't feel that way about that one, although I, I thought it was, a, you know, a good piece. I felt it was one of the, you know, it was one of the ones I was most proud of in the book. But people were like, how could you read that without crying? And I, I was like, what do you mean? It's not particularly sad. But then I realized that, it had really hit a nerve, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: just the general idea of, you know, knitting for people who needed it. And not only that, but especially in the case of Afghanistan, I think, you know, I don't want to read too much into it. The woman who runs Afghans for Afghans, Ann Rubin, she's very good about steering one away from assumptions that you might make about you know, how the people in Afghanistan feel about Americans or having this war take place in their country. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them felt very grateful that the Taliban had fallen and they, you know, didn't necessarily see it as a bad thing, although it was causing them an awful lot of hardship in their lives. You know, I don't want to jump to conclusions necessarily about, you know, oh, all the Afghan hate us or whatever, but it's true that they're in a difficult position and, and our country has had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. And the very idea that that despite all that, or maybe because of all that, I'm not really sure, you know, there's, again, very quietly, kind of almost underground, there's this group of knitters who are furtively knitting away, making sweaters, it, like things that you invest a lot of time in, like Afghans and sweaters and vests, and they are, you know, religiously knitting them and sending them over there just because they care. They want to do something, they want to make that connection. And just the idea of making that connection, like, two countries who are kind of in the midst of a war, but still there's this really positive, quiet thing happening between them, and it's, you know, again, it's because of knitting. Who knew how powerful that little craft could be?
0: Well, and it's so important, I think, in times like we're living in right now, where bombs are falling and, you know, people are shooting each other, whether it be an urban city street or in a war zone in Iraq. Or a school
1: in in Wisconsin, Yeah, happened here.
0: Yeah, you know, whether we're worried about you know, Urban violence, school violence, you know, violence overseas, American politics and our foreign policies and the effects we're having and impact we're having on people's lives right. in other countries. When you and I, you know, Betty and Jennifer can't control our foreign policy. We can't say, you know, time's up. We're not fighting anymore. Right. But we can reach out and make the connections, as you said, and by yeah. making these goods and sending them overseas. You
1: can, you can knit a hat.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can. And it seems you know. it seems I mean people might think well that what good does that do? It does. Right. I mean, it does so much good. I don't even think you can measure the amount of right. good that can bring right. someone who is really feeling like they things aren't going well at all, you know, to have someone reach out, a stranger. It just makes it seem like there is still hope and joy in this world to be had. And that's so important for people that are in war zones and, you know, orphans and so it's it's just so great to see you Give knitters the thing they were missing, that handbook for charity knitting, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's just fantastic. How many different groups are well, represented? Well,
1: altogether there's 28 okay. that I write about. And, it's, you know, some of them are charity organizations, some are self-help groups. And, you know, it's kind of like my grad school experience. You set out to do one thing and something a little bit different comes out. And when I started, in the, in the original proposal for the book, I think I wanted to write about like a dozen organizations and then have all these little stories about things people were doing around the country and, you know, and somehow it, it just expanded. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the more I found out, and I kind of had a I had a handful of groups I wanted to start with for sure. And I figured I would just find more as time went on and I did a little research and you know, you get on the internet or you start talking to people. I learned about many just through word of mouth. And, you know, you you can't leave anybody out, it seems. You know, you just, you want to take them all in. You want to write about them all and kind of hold them all up to the light. and And then you want to knit for them all, too, at the same time. And you just can't do that. And so my book was kind of the way I <laughs> knit for them all, I guess. But yeah, it was it was hard narrowing them down. You know, I had a specific page count I was kind of writing to and you know, maybe I could have gone more in depth on some of them, but you know, the more I discovered, the more I felt just had to be in there. And that's kind of how some of these self help groups got in there and you know, there's there's books and books and books that could be written about all these different organizations. And there's nothing less heartening than turning in the manuscript and thinking, hey, i one's finally done and then learning about one or two more that really should have been in the book, and there's just no way you could squeeze them in now. And I guess a point I wanted to make earlier, too, was an, another purpose I really had with this book, and, you know, it, it's nice that I put together a handbook and, you know, wrote these stories and, you know, made made this nice, compact guide for knitting for peace. But but the thing I really wanted to do with it most was, like, celebrate these people, really hold them up and say, look at what people have de- I'm just writing about them I just found them and wrote the stories they're the ones who are you know got the good idea in the first place to reach out to Russia or homeless people here in the United States or kids in South Africa and they're the ones who really did the legwork and the you know they got the nonprofit status and they found the connections and they figured out how to ship things to parts of the country that you know you couldn't ship anything, too, for a long time, like mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And and so I really hoped that, more than anything, I think I kind of wanted to be a tribute to them, too, just, and and to everybody who knits for these organizations, just kind of have this little, you know, look at what you all are doing, it's so great. That's that's what I wanted to really communicate with it, was really just to acknowledge these people and and bring them to the light.
0: And I think you did that, because it does shine a light on the people who organized these groups got things started and are kind of the unsung heroes right. in the background because everyone, you know, has heard Afghans for Afghans, but does everyone know right. who started it? No, probably not. And Ann Rubin gets her chance to so, so get a little ink about what she's doing and in a very inspiring way. So I think that's just And the just thing wonderful. I love most
1: about a lot of these groups, too, was they were, most often they were started by just one woman, you know, some mom somewhere in the middle of the country with a good idea. And most were just started off, you know, somebody's dining room table or spare bedroom or, you know, they're, they're all such grassroots efforts at the very core. You know, they're all such down-to-earth, humble kinds of things. You know, nobody went out and raised a bunch of money and, you know, created this big glorious organization there. And many still are run that way, too. They're just real, you know, down-to-earth, human-to-human kinds of, of you know operations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know, that really rings a bell with a lot of people, too, once they learn that. You know, it's easy to just kind of, you think of these groups as this entity, but there's, you know, there are very specific faces behind it, and it could be you or me, you know. And that, I think, is worth pointing out, too.
0: Well, it gives people just the reassurance that if they have that big idea, and we all have ideas, right. you know, if we had a little more time or we, we really thought we could pull it off, we'd do it. So for those listening now, if you have that idea, it's... it's um, why not get started, you know? And this book is it will give people good information, even if they have an idea to start knitting for a group that maybe is not receiving any kind of hand-knit or right. handmade goods. This is great to read. I mean, if you read this book, you're going to have, you know, kind of inside information about how all these operations run, and it's just packed full of information of how you can start your own, either a, a knitting group that would feed one of these organizations or several of them, or it give you ideas to how to get something started for a group that is not receiving anything right now.
1: You know, and it doesn't have to be, you know... A- a big national or international effort by any means. I mean, you don't have to look very far in your own community to find all kinds of people who need knit things and sure, love and sure.
0: Love. Well, there are <laughs> kids know? who show up at schools and don't have hats right. and mittens to go on the playground and in, in the wintertime, You know, I mean, it exactly. could be that simple. Find out the school in your area that that has do a kids. Drive. And, yeah, and and just donate them to the school and yeah. And then, I mean, yeah, so you're right. You don't have to be sending them around the globe.
1: Yeah, there's a woman in a little town next to ours who makes sure that no cat leaves, you know, one of the local humane societies without a little blanket.
0: Oh, wow. Every cat
1: that's there gets one that goes with them when they're adopted. And, you know, I don't know that much about her, but I, I have this image of this person just, you know, maybe she does this while she's watching TV, or maybe this is, you know, kind of her hobby thing to do, but she's just... Knitting away on these little squares and, and every cat that leaves, leaves with one of her little blankets. And, it, you know, it can be a small and, you know, that's, that's not even human touch. That's, you know, between a human and an animal. But mm-hmm. it matters, you know.
0: Well, it sure does matter. And I think that, you know, whatever you're passionate about, you know, you should follow that and, and, and contribute. And contribute for
1: know? everything you're passionate about. That's the amazing thing. <laughs> you can always find a way <laughs> to make knitting help. Yeah, I mean, that's
0: that's the beauty of knitting, you know, and I think that uh, eventually mainstream media will catch on to that, you know, and know why all these people are gathering, you know, for knit-outs and knit-ins. Right. <laughs> well,
1: wouldn't that be a great way to, you know, end the evening, some night, you snap on the news and in amongst all the stories of, you know, how many have died in Baghdad today, there's how many, you know, blankets were knit to send the kids at the local shelter I know that there's a group in town that I knit with here and they're really incredibly prolific. They they knit or crochet blankets that largely baby blankets that are sent to some are sent to Iraq, some to Africa and then some to the women's shelter here in town. And there's one woman who's kind of the uh, you know the accountant of the group and she keeps tabs on all the blankets that get finished and she's also in charge of sending them to wherever they go so she's constantly sending the tally of how many blankets are in now and where they've gone and how many we've done so far this year and she keeps trying to get the local media interested she keeps emailing one particular editor at the paper and he's like oh you know maybe not this month but you know sometime down the road maybe we'll cover that <laughs> and it's like just you know just do it you know give 2 inches of of space in the papers, just say, look, these people are knitting blankets and they're, you know, going to the New Horizons shelter and isn't that great? And look how many they've knit. And, you know, that's really impressive. That's a lot of work. So, you know, my hope is that even on a small, small scale like that, it'll start to get a little more attention.
0: Yeah. And I I, I know that's been one of my personal frustrations for, you know, the whole time I've been in, in journalism is that these stories are, are kind of you know, just deemed kind of insignificant. Like, oh, there's just people, oh, there's they're, they're knitting, you know, that's good for them. You know, and it, I don't think it's just this lack of recognition that this is really, and this is what, I mean, newspapers are fighting for a foothold now to figure out where where do we fit with, you know, online media. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. And it's, I think what they re, what's happened and what I've certainly found with this show is that people are really interested in niche like, they, they want to read about something they really connect with. So if we can, you know, have a little section of the paper that's for handmade, people who like to do things themselves and make things, um, and knit, knitting's huge, you know, mm-hmm. readers are going to tune into that, you know. So, yeah, well, hopefully the woman you you spoke of will continue to bother the editor. Yeah, (laughs) I think she will. And get her tally in, never give up. Going back, you know, to your book project here, I'm curious about, did you go out and, like I know for the prison knitting piece, did you go and spend time and see the classroom or how did you put these things together?
1: I did at one prison in particular. Black River Falls, Wisconsin, has the Jackson County Correctional, facility. I can't remember the exact name, but that's, you know, that's the, that's the prison there. And I did. That was, it was one of the first, when I was researching that piece, that was one of the first prisons I located that actually was using a craft program as kind of a rehabilitation effort. And it was so close. It was just like an hour and a half away. Mm-hmm. And the way I found out about it was um, actually an exception to the story I just told you. You know, of course, I went to the Internet and started looking for anything I could on knitting in prison. And a handful of stories in local papers across the country popped up. And those were my first leads for, you know, for the prisons in that story. And one was at this prison that was not so far away. It was clear that this other journalist had gotten in. So I thought, well, I'll give it a shot, too. And I called, and they were actually very happy to have me come and spend some time with the inmates and, you know, even knit with them a little bit. And the woman I spoke with who was kind of in charge of that program was just so appreciative of any positive press that could be gotten. You know, prisons tend to be pretty negative places anyway, and, and the perception in people's heads of prisons and the people in them are pretty darn negative too and there's a lot of stereotypes and there's a lot of kind of misinformation you know the inmates themselves were telling me when i sat down and and interviewed them that you know by and large people think of them as monsters you know they are doing no good and they're right where they belong and they should be locked up forever and on and on and on and they're like we're ordinary guys most of us who made one really bad mistake and here we are you know Mm -hmm. we're paying for it with this portion of our lives and it kind of shifts your perspective you put yourself in their shoes especially as you're sitting there knitting with them and you know you see them as humans who care about others and are genuinely sorry for things they did And that becomes an aspect you want to get across too. But yeah, anyway, I did meet, I did sit down and knit with those guys in particular. For the rest of the prisons in that article, I just made phone calls. They were all over the country. Yeah, and for one article, I wasn't your prison travel travel. budget
0: probably was not, you know, something they wanted to really fully fund there.
1: (laughs) Right? Exactly. You know, it's 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 tough to get into a maximum security prison and knit with those guys too. (laughs) I'm sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But um,
1: but by and large, for the book, uh, that was. That was pretty much how it happened. They were largely phone interviews. There were a handful of situations in which I was actually able to go and either meet people in person or participate in their group. The Mother Bear Project was just up in Minneapolis, which is you know two and a half hours away. And so I was able to meet with a group of knitters in St. Paul who were making the bears and kind of putting the finishing touches on some of the bears that had come in. And that was great. It, you know, any situation like that is so much fun because you really capture kind of the spirit of the charity, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, where people are gathered together and they're having a good time and, you know, everything is kind of fun and lighthearted and happy because people believe in what they're doing and, and enjoy knitting so much and enjoy each other. And it just, it, it was really fun. It really put a face on the organization, I think, and life into what knitting for charity is all about. I happened to be going to San Francisco, so I did get in on some packing of boxes to go to Afghanistan for Afghans for Afghans, and that was that was fun in a completely different way because there they were just coming on the end of a drive for knitted things, and so we go into this basement of this, this you know, old dingy basement of this really kind of industrial looking office building in not the best neighborhood in San Francisco, and there's, you know, these boxes and packages and everything piled up in the corner, and you get to tear into them all, and out comes all these beautiful little knitted things that people have made, and, you know, you get to sort them and pack them in other boxes, and... It just, you know, there was so much joy in that, too. It was like, I kept saying, it was like Christmas, mm-hmm. you know. These yeah. presents aren't for us, but it's like Christmas. You know, you get to open them and ooh and ah over them. And, and you know, that was just such a joyful experience, too. I wasn't able to do that in every situation with the stories and the books, but I think I got enough of it to really feel like this is what it's all about. You know, it's knitters doing good things for people, but there's just this joy that's involved, too, this thrill of giving that, you know, I think we don't get enough of in ordinary life anyway. You know, we do things on deadline or we do things for other people and it's work or it's a chore, but to just do something, you know, for fun, just giving of yourself, it's, you know, there's so much joy in that.
0: So you have made your career. I mean, this is something that's, you know, this, you're into the books now. Uh, and I know you did, didn't you do, you collaborated with recently with Melanie on a book.
1: On Hand Knit Holiday. Yeah, the holiday book. Right. She, it, it really was her idea. And she, you know, had the vision and she had the, you know, she picked the people to be in it and picked the projects and things like that. But she needed help. It was a great idea. It was a, you know, but she just felt she couldn't do it and do her job at the same time. So she pulled me in. I took care of the writing. I did, I made a lot of the connections with the designers and the yarn companies and made sure that everything behind the scenes happened as it was supposed to. So that was my role in that book. Uh, And it was enough to get the whiff on the title page. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I, I, you know, collaboration makes it sound like I, you know, it was my idea too. And it really, I have to say it was all hers. I just I just stepped in and did a lot of the of the behind-the-scenes work.
0: Well, and that's important work. That's, it is important you know, work, and makes... it was you
1: know it was a lot of work too, and uh, but fun to be in the midst of that process. You know, I, I'm a freelance editor and writer by trade now, so I still do an awful lot of editing work on books, oftentimes craft books, knitting books in particular. But I'd never been so thoroughly involved in putting together. Um, you know, a project book like that where, you know, I was really in on on making the projects happen and getting them together and, you know, meeting with a photographer and things like that. So that was a great experience for me.
0: Well, do you have, like, the equivalent, is it, like, full-time work that you're doing with all these projects? Because it seems like these projects, I mean, take up a lot of time when you're in the midst of a book project or... If you're editing someone else's book, uh, I mean, is this something where you're working at kind of a breakneck pace? Maybe Not not,
1: breakneck. No. Um, It ebbs and flows, just like the publishing calendar does. There's a couple of times a year where there's always more, where I'm working at a breakneck pace, and there's, you know, more than I can handle. And then there's a couple of times where things taper off a little bit, and that's where it's nice to have a project like Knitting for Peace or the Hand Knit Holidays book that you can really throw yourself into. And the the work I do for other publishers isn't you know sometimes it's on projects that have nothing to do with knitting, but
0: I see, so you're yeah. just you enjoy that, but you're editor and writer for other it's you don't just specialize in crafts exclusively, you're yeah, 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 but I
1: tend to do an awful lot of crafts because I have so much experience in that area yeah, well, so how
0: many publishers do you work for, would you say
1: oh gosh, um at least half a dozen wow. Well, that keeps you busy. It does. (laughs) And what can we
0: expect next as far as your writing goes? Do you have any articles or other books coming out?
1: Well, right now I'm just having a baby. (laughs) Then I'll think about the next stage. I would love to do another, you know, some kind of a follow up to Knitting for Peace. And I'm kind of, one thing that I didn't get to do nearly enough of in this book that was kind of part of the original vision was kind of going to just little local knitting groups themselves and finding out what just what people what people on the ground you know were doing in their communities and what their favorite patterns were and these bigger groups deserve the attention they get you know i'm glad that in this book i've been able to take a bunch and write about them and kind of you know like i keep saying this is starting to sound like a cliche but you know shine some light on them but you know it's I'd love to take it down a notch and focus just a little bit more on, you know, you and me, the knitters who are actually taking the time to do this or coming up with their own great ideas in their own communities and making a real impact that way. You know, just around town here, I talk to people about this idea or this book and they'll, you know, I'll find out about something that somebody's doing that I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. You know, people are going into schools and teaching kids to knit and then teaching those kids to make things for other people and give them away. And, you know, there's just so much interesting stuff going on that you would never hear about because it's so small and so local. And I guess in another book, I would love to focus more on that. Not that it would exclusively be about that, but kind of, you know, we're all knitting for peace or something. You know, just bring it even a little more, just one notch more down to earth. I'd love to tell the story of, you know, the high school football team who's knitting for, you know premature babies or something like that. I'd, I'd love to find some of those stories and uh, and kind of tell them.
0: Well, I think that would be an excellent book. Now, do you have a website or anything where people could t- send in information if they have it
1: I am you? working on that. I have my, my website name reserved. I just have to put the website together. Okay. So it's imminent. And it will be www.knittingforpeace.com.
0: I have one question I wrote down while we were talking that I didn't ask, but... Um, who taught you to knit back in the day when you were eight? Oh,
1: the woman! Oh, she was such a dear woman. The woman who lived across the road from us, a mile and a half out of Luck. <laughs> Her name was Olita Hermanson, and she was uh, the the little community I grew up with, Kind of the you know the suburb of Luck, if you will. You know, Luck is a town of a thousand Suburban people. Suburban Luck. There was probably you know a couple hundred of us. Uh, it was called West Denmark. It was the original settlement in that area. And it had been settled by a bunch of Danes, and she was one of those. And so there were a lot of Danes and Danish influences and lots of knitting going on, too. But she um, took me under her wing and taught me to knit. It was my mother's idea. My mother had always wanted to learn, uh, but her mother tried to teach her, and that didn't work out very well. So she kind of grew up thinking she couldn't knit, but darn it one of her daughters was going to learn so i um i had actually tried before i was sent over to alita's house i tried to learn from a book and i must have been like i don't know seven or eight when i did this and i just couldn't you know i just couldn't make the diagrams match what was going on in my hands i just couldn't make that leap and figure it out so i went to alita's and she showed me and and the rest is history as they say, yeah.
0: Well, I I love it. I had to know. I couldn't hang up and not know. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: That was always the first question I asked people too. It was like my icebreaker interview question for this book was like, "How did you learn to knit?" And you know, it oftentimes was a childhood acquaintance or somebody like that. A lot of people learned as children.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people did. And then some people kind of got away from it and then came back to it. I didn't really learn until my early twenties. I mm-hmm. kind of got into it because i was always crocheting as a kid that's yeah. what i did so well i don't know if there's anything i didn't ask you that you well, yeah, want to share me.
1: at the very beginning you asked how i made it out to this area from New oh, York. oh yeah i like, don't think we I ever covered that answer, we never, never got covered that help. yeah <laughs> so that's how, a how? whole other story but before like the year before i left for new york i met a guy in saint paul married him and he was from southeastern minnesota which Uh, is lacrosse is right on the border of that part of minnesota Mm -hmm. so um, when the time came to leave new york and he kind of made me promise that when we were done with our whole new york experience we could go back to minnesota you know the idea was that we'd come back and and i said sure picturing myself back in st paul and we ended up in this little town of like 500 people called brownsville minnesota right on the border of wisconsin and minnesota and, uh, and that's where I wrote the book, mostly, was in this little office in this, little, in this building in Brownsville, Minnesota, overlooking the Mississippi River. And then we moved to La Crosse just last year because we finally needed a house, and that was the one. But, yeah it, was, yeah, it was my guy. And he is so interesting. He is such a good sport for coming to New York with me because he's a, in his heart of hearts, he's a farmer. Oh, Even he's so a, a farmer in New York day. is
0: going to be, that's got to be a little bit, he, did he feel out of his element a little bit there?
1: In New York? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He's really, um, you know, he loves nature. He loves all that kind of thing. And not the biggest fan of cities, but he enjoyed his time in New York, too, but was ready to leave when it was time to go. <laughs> but he's, uh, he's an organic farmer now. We've got a little organic farm over in southeastern Minnesota that we're. Raising some cattle on. <laughs> oh, awesome. Do you have any sheep? We did. Actually, they weren't our sheep. They were his sister's sheep. She uh, lived out there, too, and she got the sheep because she had a border collie, and he needed something to play with. <laughs> so that's how we ended up with sheep. Yeah, we now have a basement full of wool that we need to do something with, and the sheep are, you know, they've moved on. They're at somebody else's farm now. And uh, But we did have sheep for a while.
0: Now, do you know how to spin? Oh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well yeah, then, I you'll do. put
0: you'll you'll find a good use for that wool. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> the problem is, like with knitting and everything else, you tend to accumulate the materials and. There's not enough time to do it all Oh, yeah. Like I, have, that, a, I have
0: a whole fleece that I bought. Uh, my oh, husband, my God. i have got like three. Well, <laughs> my husband, well, his great aunt, raises sheep, you know. So I thought, wow, this is a great fiber connection for me, right? So right. I got all excited and I said, I want to, they call it spinning in the grease, you know, and I, I, right. I, was, I was thinking, I'm going to try this, you know. And then what I really found is that it's kind of like icky, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, really <laughs> icky. And I'm like, wow. I prefer this, the washed
1: kind myself. Yeah, I
0: was like, well, this is not going to work, you know. So I, I kind of called her and said um yeah this is kind of dirty she said well i told you it was dirty and i said well yeah um how do i clean it and so she was trying to tell ta- you know explain you know how you can clean it by hand and all this stuff and I think I cleaned that, I, I've, I like tried to clean it like three times, like went through the process three times, and it's still really icky. So I I have it sitting there. I dried it all out on a screens in my basement, and then I decided that I was going to package it back up, and I'm going to one of these days take it to the, there's a mill in Michigan a couple yeah. hours away that will process it for me and dye it to my liking. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> because... See, that's, that's my latest thing, because we, um, with one fleece we bought, before we even got, you know, fleece from the sheep, that we had. Would we would go to sheep and wool festivals and like buy one occasionally which and then you just end up with more grease fleece that, <laughs> right, that you you're don't not gonna do, do anything with. with, yeah. And my husband was really into this too, which was fun. We found a way to do it in the washing machine. Oh you did? Yeah. And you you know the trick is you don't do it in large amounts because if you do, you could gunk up your whole, you know, drainage system <laughs> right. and that would be really, really bad. <laughs> right. So there's a way to do it. You kind of do it in small batches and you put it in all these lingerie bags and you soak it first in really hot water with detergent for like 10 minutes and then you rinse it in like three baths of just clear, really, really hot water and then you spin it out and and go to town. And I have this set of cards that were, I think, my great-grandmother's and my husband would sit down and card away while we were watching, you know, Sunday night TV and uh, and so we've got like we have this old pram that we picked up at an auction a while back, and mm-hmm. it's it's filled not with baby things but with these little rolled up chunks of wool, just waiting to be spun. And they've been sitting there for like over a year. And every once in a while, he'll walk by and say, "When are you going to get to that?" I'm like, <laughs> well, when I
0: when I get done with all the other stuff, yeah. But well, so and you can also do some dyeing experiments with that too, as well. Right. Yeah. Right. The possibilities are endless. Now, all they you are. Need, all you need is the time. <laughs> That's my biggest problem because I have so oh, many ideas. And it's like, if only there were an eighth day of the week, you know. <laughs> oh,
1: it's torture. I had to move. I have this nice little office in our house, and I had to move out of it because this is also where I keep all my yarn. And it's just stacked up, you know, around the perimeter. And I couldn't work after a while because I would just sit and stare at it and wish <laughs> I had time to work on it. And finally, I had to go someplace where the yarn wasn't and and work because it's too much of a distraction.
0: Well, the wonderful thing about what you're doing is that you have a career that's going to be so wonderful for motherhood. To be able yeah. to work freelance is...
1: I'm I hope so. You know, it is. It's um, it's wonderful. It's a great life. Every time I think of changing it, I think, no, I really, you know... Because I do that, too. I flirt with the idea of getting a day job. And, and there's only so many for somebody like me in the lacrosse area. So if one comes up, I think about it very hard. But, you know, it's kind of a, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Sometimes I would just love to, you know, just show up and, like, leave at the end of the day and know that there's always going to be a check, you know, at the end of two weeks. So there's, you know, that that's one thing that makes it easy when you've got a reliable day job. The thing you give up is flexibility. And it, it's not like I've gained any more time by freelancing. I oh, think of I course probably not. have lost
0: time. Right, and I think I find that people people have told me they actually work 10 times harder, it seems like, when they're kind of a one-woman show, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it happens in spurts. That's the frustrating thing. You can go a while and not be so busy, and then you can be, like, just backbreakingly busy. And people who have freelanced for, like, 20 years have said that's a balance they've never been able to achieve. Yeah. is the balance between having enough work and having too much work, you know, over a sustained period of time. Right. But being able to... Like like how would you write a book like this with a day job? You you couldn't unless you wrote it in the evenings and we all know how we feel in the evenings after a day of editing or writing. Yeah. That's the last thing you want to do. The bottom line for me, I remember with my job was editing these books and working so hard. And I was at the last job I had before I went to graduate school I was an acquisitions editor and doing a lot of like development editing where I would really hold people's hands and walk them through the process and I was very involved in in making these books come together, and you go through that process a few times, and you think, why am I doing this for other people? I could do this for myself. (laughs) Right. And, And so the point came where I realized, you know, I could write these books better than these people could. Why? What's my excuse? And that was when I finally kind of, that, and I went to Europe and saw life in a different way and came back and was going to change everything. And, you know, everything changed, not always in the ways I thought. Well, thank you so much, Betty. You're welcome. And, and
0: yeah, call any time. Be in touch. Yeah, yeah, I do want to stay in touch. It was great to chat with Betty. She's a wonderful writer and storyteller. And it was great to hear the success story of a girl who grew up just outside of luck. I can't wait until she writes that book. Let's all wish her well as she and her husband prepare to welcome a baby into their life. Betty's due next week, so this is a very busy time for her. Good luck, Betty, and thanks a million for making time for this interview in the midst of all the excitement. Be sure to check out Knitting for Peace and all the abundant charity crafting sites on the web. I don't have a specific project for you this week, but I'll be posting some links to some sites where you can find some free patterns and information to inspire you further. And also, I'll be posting additional information about knitting for peace. Maybe it's a good time to start a new organization in your town or just get together with friends or just knit by yourself um, at home. When you get Maybe do one project this year. Make a goal to give something away to someone who really needs it. A special thanks to Jessica in Palo Alto, California, and Amy in Front Royal, Virginia. Both of these ladies very generously supported Craft Sanity this past week. I really appreciate that. And I'm also very excited to remind you that there's still time to win a copy of So Subversive, that awesome refashioning book by Melissa Rannells, Melissa Alvarado, and Hope Ming. I interviewed Melissa A. and Hope for last week's podcast, The publisher, Taunton Press, is giving away a copy of the book. So what we're going to do is pick a winner at random. All we're asking you to do to enter is snap a picture of your latest refreshing project and send it to jennifer at craftsanity.com. That's me. And please write contest in the subject line of your email. And include your mailing address, so if your name is drawn, we can get that book to you right away. The deadline is Tuesday, November 28th, so there's still time. After we get all the entries, Abby, Craft is Vice President of Fun, also known as my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, will randomly select one lucky winner. So good luck, everyone, and thanks for listening. Keep the great show, suggestions, and feedback coming, and feel free to post a comment on the blog if you feel so moved or so inclined. Hearing from you in any way really helps as I plan for next year's slate of interviews. Have a fantastic week, and don't forget to craft sanity, my friends. It works for me.
1: Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guest and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity.